Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Liam Byrne to fight his extradition from Spain after he was arrested while eating in a restaurant with family members. We take a look at the man described as being a senior figure in the Kinahan organised crime cartel. Shock and disbelief in the golfing world as sworn enemies become new best friends. Live Golf and the PGA are to merge. And we'll tell you more about this shocking scene. A huge dam blown up in the middle of Ukraine's war zone. And the prince in the witness box. Harry appears in court. We'll tell you about his explosive appearance to his phone hacking case against the Murrow group of newspapers. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. we begin tonight with the latest on the arrest of Liam Byrne. The 42-year-old is to fight his extradition from Spain after he was arrested there over the weekend. Byrne, described as a senior figure in the Kinahan organised crime cartel, was detained in Mallorca while eating in a restaurant with family members. Well, joining me now is Kevin Doyle, Group Head of News at Independent.ie, criminologist Trina O'Connor and Michael Doyle, crime correspondent at The Sun, and you're all very welcome to the programme. Michael, I'm going to start with you um, first. So we saw Jerry the Moncochi also fought his extradition. So from looking at that, how do you expect Liam Byrne's fights of his extradition order to play out? Well, we learned today that he was he appeared in the Spanish court yesterday by video link, and he told effectively told the court that he will be fighting his extradition. Now, this process can go on for a number of weeks, if not a number of months. And we did see in the past with Jerry Hutch that he was extradited after six weeks. So we kind of expect maybe a similar time frame when it comes to Liam Byrne. But I guess it's up to the, the courts dealing with the matter. Now, it is the it's a Spanish court as well, the same court in Madrid which extradited Jerry Hutch. So, on that basis, we kind of expect a similar situation to emerge with Liam Byrne. So we said there that Liam Byrne was at the very top tier of organised crime in Ireland. What do we know about him? Well, the arrest of Liam Byrne is a significant a significant um, a moment for law enforcement in Europe and in Ireland. He's been one of the most significant figures in organised crime in this country for a number of years. The High Court in Dublin named him as the head of the Byrne Organised Crime Group, which in effect is the Ireland and UK wing of the Kinahan Cartel. He's been a major um, target of the Criminal Assets Bureau in this country for a number of years. They have seized his heavily fortified home in Rally Square in Crumlin. They've also seized motor vehicles, bank accounts, expensive jewellery. So he's, he's been a significant player and of course it was his brother David Byrne who was uh, murdered at the infamous gun attack at the Regent's Hotel in 2016. So he's been a, a major target of criminal organisations in this country and in Europe for, for many years now. So he did, as you say, um, be targeted by CAP here in Ireland. After that he fled to the UK and he left the UK in recent years and went to Dubai. What, what That's right, he left, Ireland, he left Ireland a number of years ago and was based near Birmingham. 
Now, it was his brother-in-law, Thomas Bomber Cavanaugh, who was the, the number two within the cartel, who was based in the same area. Now, he was prosecuted and convicted by a court in the UK last year and ultimately was jailed for 21 years. Liam Byrne kind of effectively took over as number two in the cartel following that prosecution. But following, um, in, certainly within the last year, he himself moved to Dubai because he, it would have been more of a safer environment for criminals of that nature. Um, but he left Dubai, we heard, on the 26th of May. He flew to Mallorca for a family gathering and was there where he was arrested on Sunday evening. Now, it's a shock that he took that risk to fly to, to Mallorca, given the... I suppose the, the, the nature of who he is and certainly the Spanish authorities are aware of who he is, it's an even bigger shock that he stayed around for as long as he did. Yeah, who generated the warrant and on what basis and on what basis has he been arrested? He, is, he was arrested on foot of what's called a trade and agreement, um, trade and cooperation agreement warrant, which is with the UK and it's with a number of agents that came in after Brexit. And it was the UK's National Crime Agency which issued this warrant, who were, who were basically leading this investigation with the cooperation of the Spanish police and the Gardaí. Um, but they're calling the shots. If he is extradited, ultimately, he will be extradited to the UK because this offence involves the seizure of a number of weapons in County Down in 2021. So we expect him um, to appear in a British court if the Spanish courts agree to his extradition. And what are the natures of the charges likely to be? Well, at the moment, he's, he, it looks like he's facing a number of uh, firearms charges. Um, some of them are a bit lesser than what he, what he could have faced, but they, we understand that certainly they are pursuing more serious charges. And ultimately, the sentence involved could be anything from 10 to 20 years if he was to be convicted. Okay, talk to me about uh, Encro Chat, what this was and how it was infiltrated and just how significant that has been. EncroChat was set up in around about 2016. Now this is a, as a messaging platform whereby users um, were, were issued with with uh, special handsets enabling them to send encrypted messages to other users. It was primarily used by organised crime groups throughout Europe. Now, uh, following a lengthy investigation by authorities in France, in Holland and in the UK, they managed to, they managed to crack this um, organisation back in about two years ago. But since then, I mean, we don't know who's behind it. The identities of those who are behind it are unknown at this point. Mm -hmm. But certainly since then, authorities have been thrawling through thousands of encrypted messages. And it was following this, this kind of investigation into these messages that certain, uh, certain messages were found which were linked to Liam Byrne and his organisation. So obviously they were able to infiltrate this messaging service for quite a long period of time before anybody realised. Yes, it, it was. It was it, they, they've been on certainly investigating it for a number of years before it was cracked down. Now it's 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 a highly secretive um, um, way of messaging. It was a, it was used by thousands of users, primarily criminals across the continent, and uh, it did it did collapse following following. They they really got to the bottom of who was of of the of the service. They cracked down immensely on it, and certainly um, a number of people have been brought to justice in the UK. There's been a number of murder trials which have, which have gone on following um, the, this uh, EncroChat investigation, and certainly the, it's, the Burner organisation has been linked to these, some of these messages that sort of emerged in the, last, in the last couple of years since it ended. Okay, so Liam Byrne would have known then that he was a target. As you said, he left Ireland, he went to the UK, from the UK to Dubai. People like this are conscious that the Guardi, that Europol are, are after them. So why, why go to Mallorca and why stay for such a long period of time? It's, it seems to be a strange move. I mean, he went to Dubai for the simple reason of, of avoiding um, detection. 
in many ways, and, and it, it can't be, there's no extradition treaty with, with, the, with the United Arab Emirates. It is strange that he went to, to Mallorca. We can't explain at this point. He would have been under surveillance for a number of days by the Spanish authorities. They might have waited until he was returning to the airport before arresting him. But and eventually they, they arrested him in a restaurant with two younger family members, we, we understand. So it does, see, it's, it does seem like a strange move on his part that he would take that kind of risk and leave himself open to arrest. And, and that's what he was doing. He was sitting in a restaurant with family, having dinner out in the open like any other holidaymaker. That's right. It was in the um, the resort of Alcudia, which is in the northern part of northern part of Mallorca. But exa that's exactly it. We presume he travelled on a false passport. People like Liam Byrne and other criminals have easy access to to fake passports. So, um, but yes, the Spanish authorities would have had to have him under surveillance. They probably would have had to have a photograph of him so they could check with the um, the, the National Crime Agency in the UK to make sure they had the right person. And when they were confident that they had him, they moved on on Sunday evening. What kind of um, lifestyle? Michael, do these sort of top-tier players have? Well, people like Liam Byrne and his brother-in-law, Thomas Barmer Cavanaugh, and of course, Daniel Kinahan live a lavish lifestyle. They have access to vast amount of wealth. They have luxury vehicles. They have lavish properties. It, it kind of, it's estimated the Kinahan cartel itself is worth in the region of one billion euros. So that's the, I mean, his own home in Raleigh Square, which was, he's had a jacuzzi, had a panic room, it had a gate, it had, it had CCTV. It was highly fortified home in, in a working class area of Dublin. It's estimated he spent, it was something like 250,000 euros worth of renovations spent on the home itself. So that's the kind of lifestyle they lead. And uh, it's, it's come as no shock, I guess, that, uh, that, that that's the kind of lifestyle they lead because of the wealth that's involved, the money that's involved. Uh, Trina, would you have any understanding coming from your criminologist background as to why somebody like this, who is such a player, who is such a target, would take a risk like this? Yeah, actually, it's not that uncommon because what can happen is People that get involved with crime at this level and live a life, a, a career criminal, they actually have difficulty controlling their impulses and they're driven and they're driven by power and they have a sense of entitlement. Um, so that, that would, he would have made that decision, taken that risk because in, in some regard he would have felt that he was untouchable because he may have travelled on a false passport and he felt that he, he could outsmart the authorities. Um, so it's not that unusual. They do eventually get caught because they, they start believing the hype that they are untouchable when you have a career as long as he's had as a criminal and got away with some of the stuff that he's got away with. Um, among sort of those communities in Ireland that would have been really affected by the Kinahan gang over the year, there might have been maybe a sense of disappointment when uh, Hutch, Jerry the Monk Hutch, walked free. Is there any feeling there that those gang members were untouchable and, and does this address that in any way? I think it sends a very clear message that they eventually do get caught. And I, from the people that I spoke to today, people are very happy to hear another person from this cartel is now under the authorities and, and will be prosecuted. So I think that that gives people hope um, within communities. Like, but they're so... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. They're so distanced from actually the grassroots work that's done by these criminal gangs. They're so far removed from it that it's the young people that are in the gangs within the communities mm that the people that I speak to are concerned with, they, they need to be stopped also because somebody like um, Liam Bourne is so far removed at this stage that him getting caught is good, but somebody will replace him. The same way as he replaced... Yes, it, it doesn't Bama, seem Bama to Cabinet. have... It, it never seems to have that deterrent effect, this yeah. idea that ultimately the top players do get caught yeah. and they do spend significant lengths of time in jail. Yeah. Thomas Bomber Cavanagh getting 21 years in the UK, a really significant uh, sentence but it doesn't act as a deterrent way. No, because when you're driven, when you're a driven person by, by power or a rejection of authority or somebody who has an antisocial personality that lives outside societal norms and you're within a criminal gang, you're only waiting for actually, in some regard, somebody to fall so you can step in because of the wealth, because of the, the luxury lifestyle. And if, if you... If you're somebody who has um, learned to be a criminal, almost done your apprenticeship within your environment or within your family, which many of them do, um, then they are ready to step up. And because for them, the benefit is all of that luxury and that glamorous lifestyle that they have. And we hear so often, and I think you mentioned it there, Michael, of these family links within these organisations. Yeah. A lot of them are very interconnected, which makes it possibly even more difficult for um, the police authorities to infiltrate because it's not just a gang, it's a family. The Kinnahan cartel is very much a family organisation. You have, of course, you have Christy Kinn at the top, then you have his two sons, Daniel and Christopher Jr. underneath him. If you move aside to Liam Byrne, his own organisation, his brother David Byrne was his brother-in-law, uh, was Thomas Brown Kavanagh, his cousin was Freddie Thompson, who's also now serving a life sentence for murder. Um, there are other family members, younger members now are coming through. We, um, we, 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 we kind of see, so yeah, it, it's a very much a family situation. It's almost very like the mafia, the way they all operate in, in, in some respects. So uh, that, that does make it difficult because it's hard yeah. to get somebody to turn, I suppose. Uh, what has point. been, I suppose, really significant, uh, certainly from the Guardi's point of view here in Ireland, Kevin, is the role that the Spanish police have had in all of this and the National Crime Agency in the UK and the, the very strong position they've taken against um, dismantling this gang and this organisation. Yeah, and interestingly, I think it, it all kind of goes back to the Regency Hotel mm. because that made international headlines at the time. It drew huge attention on what was happening with the Kinahan cartel, to a lesser extent, the Hutches, because that was perhaps more of a local thing. And the Americans, of course, when the Americans got involved and they had that massive appeal, offering rewards for information on the whereabouts of the, the, the Kinahans, um, mm. it took it to a whole new level. And I think the authorities in Spain, the UK, everybody started to take it at a new space then. And it's clear now that the Kinahans are very much on the run. Mm. But of course, it's worth remembering that this individual has been arrested, is still to be extradited, mm. and there is still a full trial. Yeah, and there will be, in, and it'll be in the UK. It's worth remembering people kind of assume Liam Byrne, this all links back to Dublin in many ways, but actually this trial will be in the UK. It won't be like what we saw with Jerry Hutch in terms of the Special Criminal Court. It'll be under the UK law. In the same way would happen with Thomas, uh, with Bomber Kavanagh a few, few uh, not so long ago. But it'll, it'll make the other cartel nervous, or, or leaders nervous, like the likes of Daniel, that, they, that the crime agencies can actually go after and prosecute these, these senior members of the cartel. It's not just low-level criminals we see being prosecuted now by the agencies across Europe. They're able to go after and, and in many respects, prosecute. And as we saw with Barma Kavanagh and Freddie Thompson,
Thompson convict. Um, so that will make hopefully make some of the more senior cartel leaders a bit nervous now going forward. Oh, right, we're going to have to leave that uh, there for now. Sorry, Trina, did you want to say one thing? I was just going to say the middle management within these organised crime gangs, they're the ones that are just sitting back waiting for the higher people to go and they're just ready to step in. And, that, and that's the, what we're seeing time after time. Yeah, yeah and the war against them will, will continue. All right, look, we're going to move something very different now. A pretty stunning decision from the world of golf. The PGA Tour and Live Golf have agreed to merge commercial operations. It comes after a year of anger in the golfing world with Saudi-backed Live Golf splitting from the tours last year. Well, sports journalist with the 42, Gavin Cooney, has the very latest. Gavin, who owns professional golf now? But it appears that Saudi Arabia have taken it into uh, into their control in this kind of bombshell that it, uh, that arrived at us this afternoon, uh, European time. Uh, like the, the battle lines had been painfully but very clearly drawn in professional golf over the last eighteen months or so. Saudi Arabia launched their uh, their own backs rival tour, the Live Tour. They had their first event this week last year. Uh, when the likes of Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, these guys left the PGA Tour for lucrative sums to go play with Liv. So everyone had fallen out. They were obviously banned from the PGA Tour and the European Tours. Uh, it had gone a stage beyond that in terms of falling out. There was litigation between the two tours. Uh, Liv had launched an antitrust suit against the PGA Tour accusing them of acting like a monopoly. And then all of a sudden we got what it was tantamount to a truce uh, announced on the uh, PGA Tour website uh, today. Not ex light on a lot of detail. There is some detail in there that we'll get into, but it's effectively like, happy Christmas, kids, the war is over. <laughs> and no sense at all, because I read the statements from um, PGA among others, no sense of any of the moral quandary that so many of the players wrestled with last year. We just forget all the difficulties we all had with Live Golf. This is quite, this is probably the most shocking element of it all, really. Like the PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan had uh, been a very strident voice uh, on the moral issues around Saudi Arabia's involving themselves in uh, in professional golf, saying they were using it to sports watch their issues. Only this week last year, he appeared on CBS to draw attention to Saudi Arabia's uh, alleged role in the 9/11 attacks. I think 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi Arabian citizens. Yeah, and, and he said on TV that no one has ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour, inferring obviously that anyone in bed with the Saudis should apologize. Uh, no such apologies from Jay Monaghan when he appeared on CNBC alongside Yasir Al-Rumayan, who's the chairman of Saudi Aramco and also the chairman of the, uh, of the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund to say that the tension is over. We're coming together here for the good of professional golf in the future uh, and it also is for the good of one Jay Monaghan because under the new structure he will be the CEO. Just how much of a treasure chest do the Saudi Arabians come with? Effectively limitless. I mean the PIF, the Sovereign Wealth Fund is worth what $650 billion. Like it, it's it's a product of their um, oil oil wealth. So they're using it as part of their Vision 2030 fund to try and diversify the Saudi economy. And part of the, one of the planks of that nation building uh, is in sports. Its critics will also argue that they're using sports to sports wash its image, as I referred to there in the previous answers. So uh, the, the money is effectively limitless. And we've seen it with Live Golf. I mean, they've given the likes of Phil Mickelson $100 million to play on this tour for a year that was effectively nothing but a bargaining tool, like a like the blind bid to get them to the table uh, with this negotiation with Jay Monaghan today. And now uh, the Saudi state have an incredibly influential 
role in a sport to now we've seen them, you know, stage Formula One Grand Prix. They want to stage the FIFA World Cup. They've bought a sports team, obviously, in Newcastle United. But this is almost a watershed for sports washing in the sense that they've now gone and bought a whole sport. Yeah, I mean, I saw Phil Mickelson tweeting today welcoming this decision with open arms. This is a great day for golf. But you have to wonder about people like Rory McIlroy, who were also offered huge sums of money to play in the golf, turned it down, put up this big stand. What will he do and say, do you think? We're all watching. He's due to give a press conference tomorrow during, I think, it's 3 o'clock Irish time from the Canadian Open. I mean, McElroy and all these other big-name PGA Tour golfers put their necks on the line for the PGA Tour. They took a moral stand. Okay, they're being very well remunerated where they are, but they would have been infinitely wealthier on the Live Tour. Uh, they, they stayed where they were, and now all of a sudden, they've been told that this is happening. They said that they wouldn't take Saudi money on uh, moral issues. Well, now the PGA Tour have turned around and said, actually, lads, We've just done a deal, but good news will make you even richer, albeit with Saudi money. So it's going to be fascinating to see what they have to say as to whether they will be feel betrayed at all. I would imagine that they would. And is you know, these you guys left this... a lot of money on. Sorry, is this how you ultimately see this playing out? Uh, I well, we'll see how it plays out. I would imagine that those PGA Tour players will be uh, will feel betrayed and will feel quite furious with this, but. Where have they got to turn? You know, I mean, everything, the whole point of this move now is everything is unified under this one entity in which Saudi Arabia have the chairmanship and at least a minority uh, investment control. PGA Tour will say that they have majority uh, in terms of voting rights on the board. Um, But they've got, there's no other tour to go to now. Everything is unified and the Saudis have a very influential role, which I think that they wanted, they wanted all along. So, you know, like, all this drama about mergers and acquisitions, the drama of this was meant to end with succession last week, but obviously the <laughs> world of professional golf have given us uh, another episode of it this week. Oh, this is this is far better. This is real life. I'm looking forward to this uh, Netflix season. Kevin, what did you make of all this? I mean, we do see the Saudis. They're there in the world of boxing. They're definitely there in the Premier League. They have bought golf. Other sports have been accepting of this. Is the time we just move on? Well, I have to say, I was, I was stunned when I heard it today. Like, I'm a casual follower of golf, like a lot of people, except when Shane Larry is doing well and then the awfully jersey comes out. <laughs> um, but anyone who knows anything about, who pays any attention to the sports news has followed this story. There was a whole Netflix series, which, as you say, Rory McIlroy put his neck in the line in that. Um, it is extraordinary that the politics of this can all get pushed aside. Um, Seemingly very quickly and very mm. easily and without any resistance. Well, one of the most astonishing things today was, uh, and uh, Paul Kimmage happened to be the, in the Indo newsroom when it happened. I said, what do you think of this, Paul? And he's like, gobsmacked, because nobody saw it coming. Nobody, none of the players even seemed to know that it was coming. And I think that is the most remarkable thing, is how they managed to keep this so hush-hush and then just pop it out there as a done deal. Um, and now they have put people like McElroy in that position where they are going to be in the spotlight and have to respond. And lots and lots of people have already been responding, including our own Porrick Harrington this yeah, evening. Yeah, we have a tweet, a very interesting tweet um, from Porrick Harrington. You might bring us through sort of roughly what he was saying, Kevin. Well, he basically started out by saying that he was surprised that this has happened so quickly, but not surprised that it had happened, that golf had to unite, that the massive row, the tearing apart of, of professional golf had to stop. Um, and so he was welcoming it. He got some responses to that, uh, which were a bit critical of his position. So he went on to go, I do believe it's sports washing, uh, absolutely. But you have to remember that lots of governments do business with Saudi Arabia. Lots of businesses do um, 
uh, work with Saudi Arabia and make money out of Saudi Arabia and take money from Saudi Arabia. And then added on, which I thought was the most remarkable thing at the end, my own country used to think it was acceptable to lock up unmarried mothers until 1996, which I have to say it was the second time I was stunned today to read that particular line because that is a real two wrongs making a right scenario. Um, I think everyone in this country accepts that a lot of the way women were treated was entirely wrong. So to say that, sure, we did, we did that not that long ago, so just who, makes this okay. Perhaps he's saying, who are we to judge, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't judge. Perhaps we've learned lessons. Yeah, I think it was a very ill-judged uh, response to it, to be honest. I think it was, but within his tweet, is there not a point that governments, including Ireland, mm. do trade with Saudi Arabia? That yeah. there are double standards all over the shop here. Oh, they completely are, yeah. And, and, and we take the money and we sell the meat and we sell the technology and all the rest of it. And, and we kind of, ministers go there and they wag the finger about human rights and they come home again and they go, we did a trade deal. And, and there is absolutely, we, we, it's become an accepted part of the political discourse that this happens. You, you go, you wag your finger, but you do the work. Um, and that is kind of what is happening here. But what I think is slightly different is that so many of the big, big names of golf made such a stand, they pointed at their friends, at their, effectively their work colleagues, and said that they were doing something awful and that they were taking blood money. And that was effectively the message that they had put out there. Now they all have to come back and play against one another for the same pot of money coming from the same people. But ultimately, are they going to be left with any choice? As Gavin says, the world of golf is now tied up here. Oh, this is it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a done deal now. So like, do you see Rory McIlroy packing up his clubs and, and going back to Hollywood? Probably not. He'll have to find a, 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 a good PR spin to get himself out of it. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, thank you for that. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there for now. My thanks to Gavin Cooney and also to uh, Michael Doyle and to Trina O'Connor. Kevin is going to be staying with me as we take a look at who blew up the dam in the middle of a war zone in Ukraine. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Well, the war in Ukraine has been grinding on for well over a year now. But this morning, something happened that shocked the world and had both sides pointing the finger. This is a dam in the middle of the country, or what's left of it. Earlier today, it was blown up. The big question now is by who? Ukraine says it was the Kremlin. Moscow denies this, of course, blaming Ukrainian shelling. Well, Kevin Doyle is still with me and I'm joined by Donika O'Bacon, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government in DCU. Donika, you're very welcome to the programme. But Kevin, I want to start uh, with you. The scale of this dam, I read today, it's equal in size to the Great Salt Lake mm, in yeah. Utah and the United States. So the, the risk of flooding was extensive and, of course, has materialised. Yeah, I suppose this has always been on the radar since Russia took control of it um, several months back. Um, but I don't think, from the reaction today, you sense that you don't think they actually thought they would blow it up because of the sheer extent of the damage. So it seems that one, once it went, the floodwaters just came. At one point today, they were measuring that the floodwaters are rising five to six, something like five to eight centimetres every 30 minutes in the towns around that. And by the time the water spreads out, um, they say it could be 35 to 70 towns, tens of thousands of people affected. And obviously, homes flooded, uninhabitable. You imagine in a lot of spaces, electricity gone, 
everything that comes with it. So, I mean, we've some experience of flooding in this country, but it tends to be in small pockets. Um, this is on a mass scale. And I suppose it, it, it brings Ukraine kind of filters in and out of the news to some extent. But I think this very much brings it back again into the, the, the front pages. And um, I suppose trying to understand the war is still very much at play. And this is a very different war tactic, perhaps, than what we're used to. Yeah, I mean, both sides blaming each other, Donica. But I suppose when that happens, you have to ask which side will benefit the most from blowing up this dam. So for you, who do you think is responsible? Um, well, I mean, I won't come down one way or the other because we're still waiting, you know, a lot of information. But I think, you, as you rightfully point out, uh, the question of who benefits is at the core of trying to establish who's responsible for any crime. And Russia more clearly benefits from this action. I mean, there was a, you know, counteroffensive, which has been planned now for some months. The Kherson region was, you know, amongst the most likely areas for a Ukrainian counteroffensive. They recaptured the capital of the region, Kherson, in November. So this really impedes any such counteroffensive for the, you know, short term anyway in, in the region. So that's one possible motivation for flooding the area now. Um, it also has a huge impact on the energy uh, supply in the area and Russia has consistently over a prolonged period of time been attacking the energy infrastructure. So, you know, there are a number of factors there um, that, that would lead us to believe that Russia was most likely responsible. And there have been other dams targeted in Ukraine. I know there was, I think, one targeted by the Ukrainians, but they believe that they have a justification for that. But previous attacks and dams were generally carried out by Russians. Isn't that correct? That's that's correct. And and this one, you know, it's one of six dams on, on the Dnieper River. And it's, it, it's difficult for us to really get a sense of how big the Dnieper River is. I mean, I've just come from Clare, where I was spending the weekend. It was the Arctic Russia uh, hydroelectric power plant. It's 100 metres wide. It's huge for Ireland. Um, this... This particular dam, 3.2 kilometers wide, um, it's got the volume of water uh, five times that of Loch Ney. Um, so the amount of damage that it can wreak, and there, there you come back to again, who is most likely to want to wreak damage on this area? I mean, Kherson is not a pro-Russian area, despite the fact that some of Kherson is occupied by Russia. It voted more than 90% for independence when Ukraine was seceding from the Soviet Union. So this is a Ukrainian area. So who would treat the inhabitants of this area, not to mention the wildlife and the, 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 the animals of the area, so wantonly. I mean, there's, the, the, the Ukrainians have been at pains to save their own people. You only, this, you know, because this war has been fought by two very different armies. Um, you know, I mean, you have a, a professional and volunteer army, uh, you know, of Ukrainians. And you have a Russian army, which is now largely made up of conscripts. You have the Wagner group, who are essentially emptying the prisons. Um, you know, there's some very poignant stories. I mean, I know professors in Ukraine who they post, you know, pictures of their former students who have died fighting, defending places like Bakhmut. Um, you know, I had a, a, a civil rights activist who I brought to DCU some, some years ago. He's now actually the deputy minister of defense in Ukraine, mm -hmm. but his brother died, you know, uh, last July fighting in Bakhmut. These are very ordinary people. You meet them even in, I said I was in Clare for the weekend, a lot of refugees in Clare, all from very ordinary walks of life. So this is very much a people struggle in Ukraine. And, and it's, it's very much an imperial aggression in terms of Russia. So in terms of who, who would, you know, as I said, inflict this on the local population, 
Russia is far more likely. Yeah, Kevin, one of the big concerns here, um, not only is the use of this dam for energy, but also because it provides cooling water to the nuclear power station mm. at Zaporizhia. It's been under Russian control. How much of a threat at this point do you think is there to these nuclear power stations? Because we have been talking about them for over a year now, and thankfully, um, they haven't been a target at this point. Yeah, and it was a big thing back at the start of the war. There was talk around Chernobyl and that. So the nuclear question has kind of been there all along. I suppose the truth is we don't really know, Kira, because it's so hard to get verifiable information from that particular region because Russia are in control. So obviously Russia says they didn't do this. Um, we can't actually tell exactly what has happened here. So I suppose the world watches, the world waits, but it'll probably take a couple of days at least before we start to get proper information. And Ukraine, obviously, the Ukrainian authorities are very quick to blame Russia, but it's not, I suppose, governments give them some level of credit, but particularly the US will want to verify this, especially as they're at the moment supplying fresh arms um, as part of this as well. OK, well, let's just get the latest from Moscow. Just before we came on air, I spoke to news correspondent Stuart Smith and began by asking him what we know. Yeah, well, Moscow says what happened was around 24 hours ago, Ukraine was undertaking shelling, which it's done before, and suggested this time the shells hit this hydroelectric dam. Upon hitting that dam, it collapsed, and then eventually it was destroyed by the rushing water going through the river and bringing down the whole infrastructure of the hydroelectric dam. Now, the Kremlin suggests the reason for that is because uh, twofold, effectively. One, that, uh, that Ukraine wanted to try to cut off the water supply to the annexed peninsula of Crimea, which is something that has a region that has struggled with water supply since the annexation in 2014. This prevented the canal taking water from the reservoir and delivering it to residents there. But another reason the Kremlin initially alleged Ukraine had done this was as a, uh, as a response to a failed counteroffensive, which Russia says is going very badly for Ukraine. The Russian defense minister, Sergei Shalgu, then followed up on that, suggesting the plan in his mind was that defenders on the Ukrainian-controlled side of the river would allow this flooding to take place, there would be less of a threat of a Russian offensive over the river, and that these, therefore, Ukrainian forces could be deployed elsewhere. That's what Moscow says was the motivation. But President Zelensky and Ukraine denied all responsibility, putting the blame firmly at the door of the Russians today, Stuart. Yeah, that's right. In terms of control in this area, Russia does control the left side of the riverbank, effectively, and Ukraine controls the territory on the right, which is why this river and the dam itself are so important. Now, when it comes to how much power Russia has in this area, if we're talking domestically, we're talking about how the population, the residents are treated. In to all intents and purposes, since last year, Russian authorities have controlled that area completely. Protests don't break out like we saw at the beginning of last year. But if we're talking about military control, that is heavily contested all the time by both sides. Shells being fired across from Russian-controlled territory to Ukrainian territory and Ukraine firing right back at occupied territory. Now, even with this flood ongoing and water levels still rising on Tuesday, residents in the occupied territory suggested they were even seeing fires from shells still being shot over the river. So even with flooding, even with communication difficulties, and even people trying to find water when their reservoir has just been emptied, there is still fighting ongoing in this region. Uh, we believe, Stuart, that we are seeing the beginning of this much-anticipated counter-offensive by Ukraine. How worried or concerned are the Kremlin about that? 
Well, look, publicly, not at all. And the Kremlin alleges that this counteroffensive began on Sunday, and there were two large-scale attempts on Monday and Tuesday to try to make progress by the Ukrainian armed forces. And this is the Russian Ministry of Defense here. But the statement they gave earlier, the defense minister, Sergei Shalgu, was that 3,700 Ukrainian armed forces personnel have been killed over the past three days. It alleged that 50 tanks have been destroyed, 200 armored fighting vehicles, and five aircraft. The Russian Ministry of Defense says in summary the enemy failed to achieve its goals and suffered considerable and incomparable losses. So the public message from the Ministry of Defense, which is the only thing that can be reported here, is that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is not going well at all. Okay, we leave it there. Stuart Smith, thank you for that. And so that is the Russian point of view, and I suppose it is worth noting, Donica, that many journalists reporting in Russia at the moment are reporting um, under restrictions. But Stuart did mention this counter-offensive, that we believe that it has begun. But the truth is, we can only speculate, because Ukraine have been very close-lipped about this counter-offensive. Why? Well, this is how it's always been. I mean, you know, there have been counteroffensives in the past. You might remember that last year we were discussing, like, you know, a 70-kilometre cordon uh, that was approaching Kiev, uh, looking like it was going to take over. They were repelled, and the whole region was repelled. Then in, you know, August, September, we had the liberation of Kharkiv. In November, the liberation of Kherson. All of those, you know, th there was no kind of cutting of a ribbon or blowing of a whistle. It, it, it essentially occurred uh, at, at a time of the Ukrainians choosing, and it was not advertised in advance. And so it will be thus. I mean, the Minister of Defence two days ago, quoting to Mode of all people, said, uh, words are very unnecessary, they will only do harm. So there's this notion of loose talk costs lives. So they're not advertising in advance, but if they are to go on the previous pattern of Ukrainian successes, uh, they will probably strike where we least expect. But do they have the military capability now to start this offensive? Because that's what they've been waiting for, isn't it? This is the big question. I mean, you know, parallel to the military offensive has been a diplomatic offensive. I mean, again, if you compare last year and this year, you know, at the beginning of the war, Zelensky was walking through the streets of Kiev, reassuring his people that he's with them. Now he's traveling the world, showing his people that he's got all this diplomatic support, political support. But whether it translates into military support, this is the big imponderable, because the Ukrainians have been asking for a lot. They never receive all they ask for. But there's a political imperative now to make a strike because summer is upon us. It's the time that they have to deliver uh, not only to their own people, but to their backers. Uh, to so the backers need to see progress now, do you think? Absolutely, because, I mean, you know, there's an election in America next year. I mean, there are many people uh, in the Republican Party, not least Donald Trump, who are arguing that it's not in U.S. interest to be backing Ukraine to the hilt. So, you know, this is an important year for Ukraine, and they know, even though they don't advertise it, nor do their allies, that there is a lot of pressure to, to, to get some strategic successes from this counteroffensive. Do you think this counteroffensive might have to sort of change tack, given the fact that they have blown up this dam and affected such a huge area around it? It might. It might. We don't know where they were intending to strike. As I said, her son was close to the top of the list of areas because what they want to do is they want to cut that land bridge which connects Donbass and Crimea in two. They want to get to the Sea of Azov. And Kherson is the area that, you know, would be almost closest to the Sea of Azov there. They already control the regional capital. So it was an obvious place. But as I said, they don't always strike where it's obvious. So it's not to say that it would have happened there. But certainly it makes it far less likely now that they will uh, try and, and move toward, you know, from Kherson towards the Sea of Azov. What do we expect the Russian response to be to this 
counter-offensive, Kevin, given the fact there's been so much reporting about morale being so low within the Russian army at this point? Well, based on what we've seen today, I think we know what the Russian response will be. They might not be taking credit for the dam, but I'm sure within Russia, the message is going around that this is good news for them. Um, in terms of their response, well, I mean, the, the international message will be, as it ever is, that they're just doing what they believe is right for Russia and that Ukraine is not a, a sovereign state in the way that the rest of Europe and, and the world looks at it. So I don't see Putin changing tack on anything. They will fight whatever offensive comes at them and we will find out yeah. what happens at the end of it. Do they have the capability, do you think, to stand up to a newly equipped Ukrainian army? Donica, that's the big question now, isn't it? They're under a lot of pressure. I mean, they held their Victory Day celebrations on the 9th of May in Moscow. They had a solitary tank going through Red Square. They couldn't spare really anything else. All the regional celebrations were cancelled. Um, you know, they don't have any obvious suppliers of weapons beyond what they can produce themselves. The Ukrainians do have a lot of support. The question is, is whether they have enough in place, whether they've managed to train all of those Ukrainian soldiers in this Western weaponry, which they're not otherwise familiar with. But the stakes are extraordinarily high. I mean, it's not just the map of Ukraine. It's really the future of Europe that's at stake now. And, and this will be a very decisive campaign. As always, Donica, thanks for coming in. It's lovely to speak to you and have you in the studio. I'm going to leave that there for now. Lots more after the break as Prince Harry takes to the witness stand in a phone hacking court case. Explosive stuff. See you in a minute. Is something you don't see every day, or 130 years in fact, a British royal has taken to the stand in a courtroom. It was Prince Harry who travelled over from America to take the witness stand in a phone hacking case. And he did not hold back, calling the British tabloid media utterly vile. He continued, you start off as a blank canvas while they work out what kind of person you are and what kind of problems and temptations you might have. Then you start to edge then they start to edge you towards playing the role or roles that suit them best and which sells as many newspapers as possible, especially if you are the spare to the air. You're then either the playboy prince, the failure, the dropout, or in my case, the fickle, the cheat, the underage drinker, the irresponsible drug taker. The list goes on. Well, let's bring in author and journalist Ella Whelan. Uh, Ella, that is just an excerpt from a 50-plus page witness statement that was released mm. before Harry got into the witness box and started to give his own evidence. There was also sort of a very particular criticism of Piers Morgan. What did he have to say about him? Well, you know, anyone who's been following the kind of Harry and Meghan versus Piers Morgan story, um, as depressingly I have and several other journalists have, you know that there's um, no love lost between them. And there seem, you know, around the questions of whether or not um, there was racism in the royal family, whether or not there was uh, any truth or a little bit of spinning the truth to that uh, infamous Oprah interview was all kind of points of um, consternation between Pierce Morgan and the royal couple. Um, and it, I think for most people watching the scenes in the High Court um, over the last few days, certainly today, it's clear that Harry is treating this court case in part as, you know, um, you know, a proper court case with allegations of phone hacking and things like that. And we'll have to see what the verdict um, comes through on that. 
But I think probably 80% of it is an opportunity to sound off about some bugbears he's had about the British press, um, about his own family, stuff that we've heard before, stuff that is increasingly sounding like a kind of persecution complex um, of somebody who wants to both be in the public limelight but not on terms that aren't of his own sort of stipulation. And it's, I'm not, uh, you might be able to tell by the tone of my voice, I'm not a <laughs> lover of the monarchy, but I don't think you have to be a Republican to kind of be a little bit sick of all of this by now. Yeah, I'm wondering because he has become a really polarising figure in the UK, how this case is being received by the public over there. Well, it's interesting. I don't think he's a polarised figure. I mean, there is, among people who are royalists, you know, or, or who are at least sympathetic to the royal family, I think it's probably more of a just, there's, there's a bit of a sense that after the Queen died, there was a bit of a kind of inward collapsing of the royal family. You know, people are at each other's throats and the generations don't seem to be getting on. And there's a kind of a sense that maybe uh, Harry and Meghan have gone off to America and done their own thing. And that's a shame. There's a lot made of the kind of debates that might happen on you know, it, within the tabloid press or on sort of broadcast television and, you know, morning shows and chat shows and things like that about the question of racism, about the question of all these sort of more salacious aspects of the royals fallout. But I think most people just think, you know, there's something odd going on in this family that is meant to represent, is supposed to, we're told, represent something about British society seems to be inwardly collapsing. Um, I actually don't think it's polarising. I think most people see in Harry, at least I see anyway, a kind of broader trend of celebrities trying to attack a free press. And we know that um, he, he makes a big deal in his statement about the fact that there was he was painted a certain way when he was young and that it was very unfair. I mean, most of us remember the uniform that he wore. I won't, you know, go into it because I'm terrified of being sued. But, the you know, that particular uh, unedifying fancy dress that he wore and the kind of cape is he got to uh, up to as a young man and it hit the press because he's a royal. I mean, okay. it's, uh, I think that we all have limited sympathy for the kind of whinging of someone who is happy to take the benefits of his, um, of his bloodline when he wants to, but is, uh, throws his toys out of the pram when the British press want to have something to say about it. OK, Eloine, I'm sure we'll come back to you on this because this case is going to go on for a number of days. I just want to go to my guest here uh, in studio. I mean, OK, he perhaps does feel that he was persecuted. Um, Ella would say, you know, he's biting the, fan, the hand that uh, feeds him. But he was a very, very young man and his allegations that he was goaded into his behaviour by a British press who targeted him and hacked his phone and made him paranoid about the world around him. And they have been found guilty of hacking phones of celebrities in the past. So it's not without merit where his claims are coming from. How are they, the papers, discrediting these claims? Well, so far, they haven't really had to, to be honest here, because he took the stand today. He went through various newspaper articles, questioned where did the mirror, which is the paper in focus in this particular case, where did you get the evidence to prove this? How do you know that, for example, my flight was going to be leaving on a certain date? And his, basically, his proof is, well, you hacked other people, so you must have hacked me because there's no other way you would have known. And the papers have said, well, we had sources, we had witnesses, uh, we had insiders. Um, and they don't have to put those people on the stand. So actually, 
and it's only the, the opening day, a judge will, will decide at the end of this, but a lot of what Harry put forward today was either his own opinion or circumstantial evidence that there were other events like this, so it must have happened to him. Okay, pretty major though for a newspaper to take on somebody like Prince Harry, isn't it? Oh, it is. Well, I think they were left with no choice because he wanted his day in court, so it, there was never going to be a settlement here by the way it was going, so we'll get lots more drama out of it. And I, I, I know Ella's suggesting we're all fed up, but a lot of people are enjoying it too. Yeah, I'm watching. I know you are too, and so is Ella. All right, I'm sure you are at home. We'll bring you more of that throughout the week. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight via MTV. But from all the late team here, good night and take care. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.